Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of All My Movies. And this is, there's no question about it. This is a big one. Today, we are talking about 1977's Star Wars as it was released, now known as 1977's Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. I'm really excited to talk about this. And the production of Star Wars is so well documented. There have been so many documentaries, books, you name it, written about the making of this movie that I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty and just repeat and recite a lot of the questions and answers that have been raised over the years about the production of this movie because it's been covered so much elsewhere. What this episode is going to be about really is the mechanics of this movie. How did it become the movie that it is? Why did it have such an impact on audiences? How did it come into my life and the effect that it's had on my life? and the effect that it's had on people worldwide. I will also be talking to a very special guest, maybe the big Star Wars fan I know, Mr. Ken Knapsack, who literally wrote a book called Why We Love Star Wars. We're going to break everything down, including his origin story with Star Wars, in just a little bit. But first, let's talk about the movie. So if we're going back to the origins of Star Wars, of course, we really have to look at George Lucas and where George Lucas was when the development process began on this film. He's already come out of USC, he released THX 1138, and he's also teamed up with Francis Ford Coppola to found a production company called American Zoetrope that's been producing hit films. It produces The Godfather, which won the Best Picture Academy Award. Then in 1973, George Lucas found himself shopping around his latest film, American Graffiti, after the studio he made it with, Universal, threatened not to release it. As he's going around town, he meets with Alan Ladd Jr., who was the head of 20th Century Fox. And Alan Ladd Jr. likes what he sees in George Lucas. He sees a lot of promise in him as a filmmaker and decides to give him the money to write and develop his next idea, which he wants to be some kind of a space opera, some kind of a space adventure. Lucas explains this even further in this interview with the American Film Institute. I got the deal to do the screenplay, and it wasn't really until six months later that American Graffiti came out and was a hit. This was all done when I was starving, and I, the, the $20,000 I got to write the screenplay was like more money than I'd seen in two years. So I was very uh, relieved that I could now sit back, write a screenplay, have a job, you know, eat a decent meal, that sort of thing. Subsequent to this meeting, American Graffiti was released. It was a smash hit. George Lucas got two Academy Award nominations for the movie for Best Director and Best Screenplay, but he was still thinking big bigger even than the success that he'd already achieved. In fact, it took George Lucas over two years to develop Star Wars to the point where he could even submit the script to 20th Century Fox to get a budget for the movie. And it's well known that George Lucas developed the idea because he was inspired by filmmakers like Akira Kurosawa and the serials he saw when he was a kid, Buck Rogers and all that stuff. But he also had an idea to create a new mythology. And this is a concept that he explains in a documentary for A&E that came out back in 2002 called Creating an Empire. I was toying with the idea of doing a a modern myth. And then I thought, well, where most mythology takes place in a distant place. Uh, So I said, well, the only place that's left really is outer space. I mean, it's the only place where we don't know what's there um, and uh, where it can be magical. The new mythology that George Lucas wanted to create was rooted in the writings of Joseph Campbell a literature professor who in 1949 published a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And that book put forth a theory called the monomyth, essentially saying that all great stories across time share one common myth, one monomyth, and that's why people respond to storytelling in such a strong way. This is how Joseph Campbell describes the monomyth in the introduction to The Hero with a Thousand Faces. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. As he was writing the early drafts of his script, Lucas found that what he was developing lined up pretty closely with Joseph Campbell's monomyth. So in order to build this new mythology, he decided to tailor what he was writing even more to this structure. And when you talk about things like Joseph Campbell and the monomyth and the hero's journey, it all seems like pretty heady, heavy stuff. But George Lucas also realized that he wanted to inject a lot of fun into this movie, taking the audience back to the serials of his youth with people sitting on the edge of their seats waiting to see what was going to happen to their favorite heroes. And he goes into this a little bit more 
in this special called The Making of Star Wars, which aired on ABC in 1977, in the wake of the movie becoming a massive hit. It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Now, one thing that George Lucas did not worry about was over-explanation or having to sit and tell the audience all about the world that they were being introduced to. As a matter of fact, he was much more focused on making characters that were mythic and relatable so that you didn't need to know exactly what was going on. All you had to do was relate to the characters, as Lucas explains in this 2004 DVD commentary. When I would get thrown into something like Seven Samurai or Jimbo or Akuro or any of the movies, it was like I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I could follow the human story, but the culture was completely complex and oblique. I liked that feeling of being thrown into an environment. You know, trying to get my bearings and still be able to tell a story in that environment that made sense. To facilitate this, he wrote some characters that were actually being introduced to this world for the first time themselves. They were almost audience surrogates. And of course, first and foremost of those characters would be Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill. And this was actually part of the character that was appealing to Mark Hamill, as he explains in that same 1977 ABC documentary. Like Dorothy in, in Wizard of Oz or Jack Hawkins in Treasure Island, there's that one character that uh, people look to to see the reactions to everything else. He's very simple, very naive, very straightforward. One of the hallmarks of the monomyth is that there is a mentor character along the hero's journey. And to fill that role, George Lucas went to pretty much the only established name, probably along with Peter Cushing, in the entire cast, and that was Sir Alec Guinness, whom he chose to play Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the fact that Sir Alec Guinness was already a screen legend and an Oscar winner was not lost on the rest of the cast, particularly the young cast members. And this deference to his status was actually something that Sir Alec Guinness was not very comfortable with, as Mark Hamill explains in this Blu-ray extra. And I kept referring to him as Sir Alec. And he tapped me twice and then gave me a pretty good, what, 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 what? He said, I want to be known by my name, not my accolade. To which I replied, what do you want me to call you, Big Al? There's so much ground to cover with Star Wars. I, I think in every movie fan's life, because particularly people my age, um, older, younger, anyone who was around when the movies came out, um, it is a key moment. It's one of those things that you remember. When was the first time you saw Star Wars? I remember the first time I saw it was on the USA Network. When it ran on Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I popped in a VHS. I'd heard of Star Wars. I knew of Star Wars, but I had never seen Star Wars. And so for a long time, it lived on this tape with a handwritten label on the side that just said Star Wars. And I remember watching the first... 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and George Lucas has talked about this, the idea that for the first half hour, the main characters are two droids, two robots. And I remember being very intrigued. I didn't know what this movie was. It, it, it was different. It was different from anything else that I'd seen before. The scale of it was different. Just the, the, the argument between R2-D2 and C-3PO in the desert on Tatooine. I remember watching it and, and thinking, I don't know what this movie is. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning within a day, you nearsighted that scrap pile. I was eager to know more. And then as we went, th the story unfolding, I remember being shocked when Luke goes to the homestead and sees those two skeletons that were his aunt and uncle because, uh, again, you're, you're not expecting that in this moment, or at least I wasn't, because you, you start on this kind of comical note, it's very big, it's very grandiose, it's very, you know, this huge space battle. And then you have this very personal thing that happens to Luke Skywalker, and, and it threw me for a loop. And then, of course, you meet Han Solo, you meet Princess Leia, you meet Darth Vader. And one by one, these characters, I started connecting to them, I started connecting to the story. And I, I think one of the things that that made it so popular is that there there are inside the movie these little episodes, these little episodic things. It's that serial feeling that George Lucas was going for. The trash compactor is its own little cliffhanger. Uh, the the 
the fight with the TIE fighters out in space is its own little part of the movie. It, it's, it's subdivided into these little sections. And you really, you know, when, when, when I'm a kid and I'm watching it, I, it doesn't really register why that works for me. But then as I'm, adu- as I'm an adult, I realize it, it, it's like a roller coaster ride. You, you hit these peaks and valleys. But at the same time, and it was so smart for George Lucas to cast someone like Alec Guinness, with Obi-Wan, he grounds the movie, and not in a self-serious way, but in a way that you know that this is to be taken seriously. I felt a great disturbance in the Force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. And so when Ben dies, you feel that loss. It doesn't feel disposable. You understand the impact of what that is. And so George Lucas really did do a brilliant job at marrying this idea of mythology and Saturday morning serial. Uh, Two completely different art forms, two completely different ways of telling a story, and yet he was able to pull it off. And I think that that's why it appealed to me. And then, you know, obviously you go from there, and, you know, I've seen Star Wars a countless number of times. I have the, uh, the, the, the the original trilogy box set before the special editions, the ones that had the Leonard Maltin interviews uh, before them, which I watched and was maybe the first time other than Entertainment Tonight that I remember seeing Leonard Maltin, who is now one of my favorite film critics. What was the most serendipitous bit of cast? Probably uh, Harrison. Star Wars seeped into your DNA. It, it, it just becomes part of who you are if you are a fan of it. And... One thing that I think is different for people around my age than any other group is that we came uh, of age in an era where Star Wars was not this ongoing thing. It was a limited capacity. There was three movies. And then if you wanted to read the books, you could read the books. You had the Ewok TV movies. But really, it was three movies. And up until the time I was 16 years old, that was probably it. And up until the time I was 14 or 15, that was all we really knew that we were going to get. This idea that you would get more Star Wars was not necessarily something that uh, we had even considered. There'd always been rumors. But again, this is pre-internet, so it's not the kind of rumors that you get nowadays when you hear about a movie being developed three years before it happens because it's, it's breathlessly followed online every minute of every day. And so Star Wars was a finite thing. And so I know when people look at Star Wars fans, particularly older Star Wars fans, and I think on the grand timeline of things, I am now one of them. I mean, I certainly was not there. I was born in 1983, the year that Return of the Jedi came out. So at a certain point, I would be a newer Star Wars fan. But on the long timeline of Star Wars at this point, I'm an older Star Wars fan. But I know a lot of people say, like, why do you revere that original trilogy so much, you know? Uh, so many people seem, you know, why why did you have such strong reactions to a choice they made with Luke, for example, and, and what they did in, in Last Jedi, which some people liked, some people didn't like. I'm very on the fence about that film. That's a whole other episode. Uh, but I think it's because Star Wars means something different to different generations and to people uh, even five or ten years apart and so for me star wars was this finite thing it was this thing that was completed um it 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 was a whole picture and so the story was done and so we connect with those characters in a different way when the story is finished as opposed to the story picking back up again and going back in time and then going forward in time i think that's why you see so much push and pull with Star Wars fans. It's this idea that you can paint all Star Wars fans with one brush, and that's just not true. Um, fans who who were kids when the prequels came out are different from fans who were kids when the original trilogy came out are different from fans who were younger when the new movies came out. You experience things in different ways, but I, I think the one thing that people lose sight of is that going all the way back to this movie, to A New Hope, And what George Lucas was trying to do, this mythology that he was going for, what has he done? He built an entire universe of things. That's mythology. That's what mythology does. And so I think that Star Wars stands up to 
the great mythological tales uh, of, of modern times uh, and of ancient times. If you just look at what it inspired in people, the passion and the love and the, and the hope that it gave a lot of people, I think it does measure up. And, and, and I think part of it is that, that because we live in current times and movies are seen as disposable or pop entertainment, then the concept of Star Wars, this movie launching a modern mythology, is kind of poo-pooed. But it, it, it's just the art form of our time. That's why I always argue about John Williams, who wrote the score to this movie, who's a brilliant composer. I put musically, I put John Williams on the same level as a Mozart because Mozart wrote symphonies and, and stuff because that was the medium of his time. John Williams writes music for movies because that's the medium of our time. I don't necessarily think that the medium qualifies or disqualifies stories when you look at the, 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 the length and the breadth of classic literature or classic storytelling or classical music. I think that Star Wars is one of the great classical mythological tales of all time, and it starts with this movie. It starts with the success that George Lucas had in building these characters and tapping into the exact vein of human storytelling that he was going for. And as a matter of fact, this movie is so popular that the making of it has become fodder for any number of different books and TV shows and movies. We could do a two-hour show about how the movie was made, but it would probably have been covered in so many other places. But one thing that struck me as I was looking at materials related to making the film and related to the publicity of the film is exactly how little regard the actors actually had, particularly for the story and the dialogue of the movie, as the first movie was coming out back in 1977. For example, Here's Mark Hamill kind of talking down what the story is on the UK TV show Blue Peter. Can you tell us a little about what the story is about? In well, Star Wars? Uh, the story when you actually put it into words is mm. only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. And on the UK talk show Parkinson in 1977, Alec Guinness describes his less than impressed reaction when he first read the script. Then I started reading and it seemed to me the dialogue was pretty ropey. Uh... But I had to go on turning the page. Here's Harrison Ford talking about his reaction to the dialogue decades later in Creating an Empire. I did tell George one time uh, that you could type this shit, but you couldn't say it. And here's Carrie Fisher talking about it in Empire of Dreams. It was tough dialogue to say. So I think I got um, Governor Tarkin. I thought I recognized your foul stench, which, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm always talking like that. In fact, one of the most enduring things about Star Wars as you see the process of making it both at the time and decades later as the actors look back on it is just how difficult it was for any of them to relate to George Lucas, right down to the infamous faster and more intense note that he would consistently give his actors. And you know, let's be honest, the script for Star Wars is brilliant in the worlds it creates, in the universe that creates. It is the source of something that became one of the biggest pop culture phenomenons of all time. But it's not exactly groundbreaking when you take it down to a dialogue and story level. But George Lucas, in a weird way, knew that. I mean, I'm sure he was probably impressed with the dialogue that he wrote, but I think he also knew that the power of his story was in the primal elements of its storytelling. The fact that he was taking the structure and using these characters in a way that had worked for audiences going back to the Odyssey and before. And maybe that's why Star Wars became such a massive hit almost from the second it opened on May 25th, 1977. The film is breaking attendance records all over the country. Not since Jaws have so many people stood in line to see a movie. Star Wars cost $9 million to produce. It will bring in at least 10 times that amount. All of these factors, the right script, the right cast, the right writer-director, the right creative team, the right time, they came together to create a massive hit that everybody loved in 1977. But why do we still love it? That's what I'm going to talk about with my guest, Ken Knapsack. But before we do that, I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You know, in my opinion, I think that cereal is the perfect food. You can have it first thing in the morning as part of a great breakfast. You could have it in the middle of the morning for a snack. You could have it for dinner. You could have it right before bed. It fits into any part of the day. But, you know, when I want a bowl of cereal, I'm not always wanting to get jacked up on a bunch of sugar, especially if it's right before bedtime. What am I just going to, like, eat all this sugar and then go to bed? No, I'm going to be up till 4 o'clock in the morning. That's where Magic Spoon comes in. 
Not only does Magic Spoon have zero sugar, it has 11 grams of protein and three net grams of carbs in each serving. And you've got some great flavors to choose from. You've got blueberry, cocoa, frosted, and then my favorite, which is the fruity flavor. I poured myself a bowl of the fruity flavor Magic Spoon cereal earlier today. It was like I was sitting at the breakfast table when I was a kid. It was like the cereal that I ate growing up, except that Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, GMO-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So if you want to try this out, go to magicspoon.com slash movies. You can get the variety pack, try out all these flavors for yourself, and don't forget to use our special promo code MOVIES to get free shipping on your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident that they are going to send you some great cereal, they have a 100% happiness guarantee. That means if you're not happy with their product for any reason, you will get your money back, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash movies and use the code movies to get free shipping on your order. And I'd like to thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. I am so happy to have my guest on today. He literally wrote the book on why we love Star Wars. It's called Why We Love Star Wars. He is a massive Star Wars fan. He's the host of the Force Center podcast with Joseph Scrimshaw and Jennifer Landa. He's also a good friend of mine. We used to get ham and cheese sandwiches together. Mr. Ken Knapsack. Hey, Ken, how are you? Oh, Dan, it is so glad to be here to talk about Star Wars, reminisce about ham and cheese sandwiches, and uh, you show me all the sights in New York. Uh, missed you, buddy, and uh, happy to be here with you. I, I, I will tell a quick story. Ken and I, I was with Ken the first time he ever went to New York City, and I was so excited. I, we, were, we were in Midtown Manhattan, and I said, all right, I'm going to blow Ken's mind, and I was going to walk you by the Manhattan Public Library, where the, the opening seat of Ghostbusters is. And we spend like 20 minutes walking there. And I'm like, Ken, you're going to love this. You are going to love this. I'm, I'm not going to even tell you where we're going. You're going to love this. And as we're rounding the corner, it pops into my brain that Ken, famously at that time, had never seen Ghostbusters. I'd never seen it, Dad. If you had taken me to a random intersection and said, uh, this is where w- Harry met Sally, I would have been like, ah. Um, but I, I tell you what, though, Dan, since then, I have seen Ghostbusters. And when I watched it, I went like, oh, that's the library. I've been there. So it actually worked out in the end. There you go. Redemption in the end for me. So, Ken, today we're talking about it's interesting. This is one of those movies that depending on how old you are, you call it something different. You and I call it just Star Wars. There's a certain generation that calls it Episode four, A New Hope. But for us, it's it's just Star Wars. Well, yeah, well, it it always said it after a re-release. I think Lucas started changing that like early 80s i remember someone someone will correct us and track it when it was originally released in the theaters that part of it wasn't there it wasn't until after the film became a big hit that i was able to put it back on i've adapted i think i have to just being in this star wars punditry world but i also call it uh, episode four a lot um which is which which is also weird too you're you're so right on the playground it was just it was just star wars well because it's gone from a movie name to a brand name even more so in the last 20 years or so, which we, which we will talk about how this has all evolved from this one movie, then three movies, then this this monstrosity that it is. Use the Force Link to activate real movie phrases. The darkness guides me. And battle action sounds. Something I like to do whenever anybody comes on the show is, because the show is not just about the movies themselves, it's about our experience with them. How they affected our lives, how they, you know, the impact they had on us. So, uh, do you remember the first time that you saw Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope? Technically, no. Uh, I was a uh, little over one years of age, uh, swaddled in a blanket in the back of a Volkswagen van at a drive-in. Uh, my mom and dad did take me to see it. So, you know, you can make the easy joke as I have in the past uh, and tell them a story. Just, you know, the force was in me before I knew it. Return of the Jedi was the first one I saw in the theaters and had this big memory of. Prior to that, I thought Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, and Buck Rogers were all the same thing. And I got to be honest, I think you're forcing me to really dig down. I think the first time I really saw A New Hope, Episode 4, was on TV and a taped VHS copy. I'm similarly. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw it was on USA Network. I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Star Wars is next on USA when Leia is is uh, tortured, the, the the torture droid, and the door slams shut, that's commercial break. It's weird, Dan. I just discovered a collection of 2002 mix CDs I made, and I've been listening oh, wow. to them, and I'm like, oh, this song's next, because I haven't heard it in 20 years, but your, your, your brain just sucks it in, as it is with Star Wars. So you see Star Wars on TV, 
when you're a kid. You got it memorized. At what point does it move from this is a movie that I really like to this is something that I want to really dig deeper into and like get get just neck deep into the fandom of? I rem- I wrote about this in in the book. Why we love Star Wars. There was a moment, uh, and my mom and, and dad aren't huge Star Wars fans. My dad's like a he's a movie fan. He just loves big spectacular movies, but he kind of doesn't really. He's not plugged in. Uh, told me after he saw Force Awakens, he was like, "I think they're keeping it over open for another one." I was like, "You're right, Dad. They definitely are." Um, so <laughs> I remember I was in a grocery store uh, in my hometown of Royal Grande, California, with my mom, and I'd seen Return of the Jedi and I'd seen Star Wars, uh, and I think an Empire was the last one. And it w- I saw them so close that I don't remember them out of order. If that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. just all there. And I was asking my mom, I was just dr- drilling down on this. I like, what? What is? What does Obi-Wan know about Luke's father? What does he mean in Clone Wars? What, what's going on there? And all these kind of like or questions that my mom's like, have a Snickers. Uh, <laughs> it, it's all it all works out in the end. Um, and so I think from then, that's when I think I just started getting pulled into the world uh, that, that George created. The myth stuff was there. We can talk about that. I think that's the genius of the first film. Uh, it's it's so deep, but it's just you slide. You get to slide on the surface of fun, and that's that's what pulled me in. I just kept coming back to it, you know. Well, that's funny because we were speaking earlier in the show about with George Lucas and how he was constructing the these stories, and he said that you know he wanted to tell mythology, and he said, well, one of the only places they haven't done it yet is space, and so that's one of the reasons why he did a space movie. Um, and, you know, Joseph Campbell and all of these things. And and he even talks about with Kurosawa. And, and, you know, even if it's fantastical, you have to make it real in some way. This world that he creates in this movie, in the first movie, why do you think it captured so many people's imaginations almost immediately? I think, first of all, he's you, you touched upon the influences that are that are pretty famous. Now, if you, if you if you know the Star Wars story, the behind the scenes story, you go to Hidden Fortress and then the Kurosawa stuff. He's such a fan of Kurosawa's work. and and the Joseph Campbell connection. And, and I, I think there's a quote, God, I should have pulled it. It's from, uh, there's uh, Paul Duncan has these books, the Star Wars archives, these official, I mean, they're like $200 and there's, so you can squeeze tofu with them. That's what I use it for too, as well as research. Um, and there's a great quote from Lucas. that's just highlighted where it's just like, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, yeah, no, Star Wars is all these things. I didn't ever make it to be its own thing. I made it to be a, a sum of all these parts and, and these things that we're familiar with that we connect with. And so uh, to go to the twin sun scene of, of Luke Skywalker looking out, I think that's the best example of why it worked, Dan, because we're coming out of, uh, you can't deny you're coming out of Nixon era, Vietnam, Watergate, uh, all the movies, you know, at the time, uh, you know, it's Gene Hackman chasing someone down with a gun and French connection and it's dark and it's uh, moody stuff. Uh, everything in space before that has been dark kind of movie, mo- uh, moody and, and introspective and, and Star Wars is, but, George just exploded it all out, but he he kept it to a kid in Modesto, essentially staring out and wanting to know his place in the world. And I think that's the scene that just captures what George did so well. I'm going to give you all this, but really, this is you in 11th grade wondering what you're going to do. A cowboy movie set in space. That's Star Wars. It's old-fashioned, escapist entertainment, pure and simple, with no moral, no message. And it appears this is what just about everybody in the country is in the mood for. The movie saw of its time and some of the hairstyles are of its time. And you can, you know, Lucas famously being up, uh, upset at himself for not being able to just fully capture his own vision with the canteen and everything. But all that aside, it just it, it was right time, right place. But but it's backed up by those those base level human emotions. And so the, it is fun. And you're almost not picking up on how deep you might be connecting to it. That makes sense. So Lucas. When he was making the sequels, a uh, very business savvy approach, but something again that that I didn't really realize was, you know, people talk about like, oh, he kept the rights in the, so he could make all this money on the merchandising, which he did. Yeah. Uh, but also one of the reasons that he kept the rights was uh, that he wanted the freedom to make the sequels because he said, I have three movies. I want to make the other two. I don't know how this one's going to do. If it doesn't do well, I want to be able to go and make these other two films. Um, but that does then grow. It grows from, uh, you know, I want to talk about like the exponential growth of Star Wars because then it goes from one movie and then it goes to the original trilogy and the, mer- and, and the merchandising and that initial run of merchandising. And that's probably where 
you know, I come into it probably early 90s. So mm-hmm. it's seven years since Jedi. Um, but, you know, I think you you got you got a couple years on me. So you probably remember like the the heyday of the first yeah. wave of Star Wars merchandise. Yeah. I got a, I got a lot of gray in this Obi-Wan beard now. Dan. Oh, um, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely do. I, I, uh, I I'm looking off camera because I'm looking at my I have a wall that has like a bunch of Star Wars figures now, three and three quarter figures. So I mostly collect the six inch black series now. And that's what it was. And you can see the pictures, but you can never fully capture what it was like to turn the corner at a J.J. Newberry or a Thrifty or whatever and uh, see just that wall of Star Wars toys back in the day. And and that was the genius of it. Um, that great series, The Toys That Made Us by uh, Brian Volkweiss and his team, uh, I think captures a lot of it. it I love that first episode. Uh, it, it brings tears to my eyes. Um, uh, hearing them talk about the figures. When the first boxes were delivered, they never even reached the retail counter. People dove into the boxes. People were literally attacked when they saw these boxes coming out. It, like you, You're right. It was more like, it wasn't like he was like, let's get the toys. It was like, I need to make my movies. This is where I can do a bigger, deeper discussion about his business savvy uh, savviness. But what the end, regardless, the end result then is my generation and the generations after uh, were able to take the movie home with them in a way that no movie you've been able to do previously. And, and, and you're playing with the, the heroes in, your, in, in, in the palm of your hand and taking them on adventures. Uh, the expanded universe, I always say the expectations for episode seven were immeasurable because I started writing episode seven in 1983 with my Kenner, you know, um, and, and that's, I think, part of it, too. And, and, it, and it changed the industry. And so many people tried. And they couldn't quite capture it. You're a big Star Trek guy. The Star Trek figures are, there's a vast collection of Star Trek figures, but it never got to that level. It was just something different. It might have been that Star Wars was first. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, I know there's toys before, but the, the first on this level. Um, but yeah, I think that was, that was part of it. That, that's part of that perfect storm. Well, I think that's also part of the mythology of it. When Lucas is saying he wants to create modern mythology, well, that's what people do is they add to those myths. And yeah. I remember growing up on the playground, like we would talk, my friends and I, we would talk because the the EU was was becoming was a thing. It had been running for a while, and so but there was talk about like, oh, do you know how Darth Vader became Darth Vader? It's like he was fighting Obi Wan Kenobi and he fell into a volcano, and like there was already yeah. this. So then we would we, we would do the fight between Darth Vader and Obi Wan Kenobi where he falls into a volcano. But then you 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 codify it, and it's it's weird. It's it's. Do you think that the further you go, because the end of this movie, there's limitless possibilities you can go anywhere and then you do the the other two and the, so you know where these stories go as you go in and you make more movies and, and i think the expanded universe you know I, I i there were some people that were into it but i don't think it, it closed the circle definitively on things for everybody i think some people could still take luke skywalker where they wanted if they want mm-hmm. to go down the mara jade path and follow the books they can if they want to just make up their own thing they can but as you make more movies and you start closing these loops and saying like okay but this is the official thing that happened do you think you do you think that enhances the fandom because people are finally getting these questions answered? Or do you think it takes a little bit of that fun out of the imagination of of, of just seeing these things in your mind? This is a, this is a you got three hours. Let's talk about the current state of fandoms and taking in films and, and TV shows. I think it can't it can't help but kind of hurt our own imaginations. Uh, that's just going to be the case. But that was the case the moment Empire Strikes Back came out, right? Uh, expectations, our own stories, uh, that, that's, that's, that's kind of the inherent problem. But you got to, the creators got to tell their stories. George has to tell their stories. You mentioned the EU. I am, I guess, infamously, even though I, I, I've, uh, reputation as a pretty positive, uh, Star Wars fan. I'm not a huge EU fan, never was into it after the Thrawn trilogy and the Jedi Academy stuff. I said, this is not for me. I respect it for keeping the flame alive. It introduced a lot of people to Star Wars, so I have no problem with it. It just wasn't, it wasn't, mine it didn't feel like star wars to me all the time but that's a weird what is star wars you know um for me going forward yeah there's some problems with it that's why i think i uh we have this saying that that scrimshaw inter- introduced to kind of our force center kind of lexicon our our drinking game of force center words and phrases that we say a lot uh, and joseph said once the you know and it just really stuck with me if, if engage with the story that's presented to you uh, and 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 that is 
the, to me, the big success of, of modern Star Wars is it is it's presented a story that connects emotionally to what George put out there. And when it works, it plays within those those boundaries and margins. And it can give you it can answer a question that you don't like. You might not like that. That's the Kessel Run. You might have envisioned the Kessel Run completely different. I did. But it's what is there, the themes presented that connect to the larger story. So Solo is the story of oppression on the ground. Uh, the story of identity, the story that, that 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 I just think is so valuable. But yeah, you might go, eh, eh, that's not the Kessel Run. And and I I I say this, Dan, all the time: Star Wars does not want you to ask how or what; it wants you to ask why. I was once a Jedi Knight, same as your father. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. Good friend. So. We talk about the story spinning out from this original film, but A New Hope also has a kind of interesting spot in film history mm. where there are multiple versions of this one movie, even, yeah. that people can watch. Because the big resurgence for me when I was a kid was the Star Wars movies existed. The last one came yeah. out in 83. And it was popular, but it was kind of a... I don't want to say niche thing. Like there were a bunch of kids into Star Wars, but I don't, it wasn't certainly not the size that it was now. But but where it really started coming into the public consciousness again, leading up to the prequels, were in 1997, George Lucas re-releases Star Wars for the 20th anniversary uh, with this special edition. I am very mixed on this, partly because he they, he keeps well he he did he he can't anymore but for a long time he kept going back and re 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 redoing them uh i think about 40% of what he did are actual useful alterations to the film i think about 60% of what he did takes away from the movie um did you see the special editions when they came out what were your initial thoughts oh dan when that commercial for that i think i did see a trailer in the theater first of that little tv and then for that for generations, this is how many watch and then see it again for the first time. Like, I love that. But if you've only seen it this way, you haven't seen it at all. I bought tickets. I had two showings. Uh, and I still uh, really have a fond spot in my heart for the special edition. Having seen them, having I still own the VHS copies, the, the, the official box set one out there. <laughs> Um, and seeing it, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, hey, what was, I, I kind of agree some of those think pieces about, you know, you should keep films of their time and everything. But I also believe that George is truly an artist, isn't just a tentpole filmmaker and churning these out. And, and he, I think in Chris Taylor's book, How Star Wars Conquered the, the uh, Universe, um, I think the opening weekend, George went in again and corrected some audio that he didn't like that he saw in the theater. And it's just, and he was disappointed. And, and, and uh, if you watch the Empire of Dreams documentary, he's pretty honest. Uh, John Dykstra and that ILM crew, they didn't, they didn't get it all right, you know? And Dykstra kind of sits there and goes, well, if George is disappointed, I mean, that's that sucks, but we worked hard. Um, yeah. And so George wanted to go back. Uh, I, I, I don't want to take that away from him. And I agree with you. I think. There's some things in special editions that I absolutely love. Some are just fun things that like, oh, I'd always heard about that. It's there now of, you know, the Jabba scene. Not only did it not work technically and it was, you know, but it was just we moved all that because it didn't work in 76 when you're shooting it. We moved all that dialogue and expedition to Greedo. I'm very conflicted because that was the first time I ever saw any Star Wars movie on the big screen. I had seen them on, you know. I would I would fire up the VHS. I'd watch the Leonard Malton interview with George Lucas. Hello, I'm Leonard Malton. And then I'd watch the original Star Wars in the, you know, four by three SD pan and scan. And the other thing is a lot of people say, oh, well, it's not so bad because they're watching it now. They're watching the Blu-ray version now of that Jabba the Hutt scene. But the Jabba the Hutt that you see now on the Blu-ray is not the Jabba the Hutt that we saw in 1997. That special, there's some rough stuff in that special. Yeah, that that was rough. That was rough. But, you know, at least, I don't know, McClunky. I don't know. What are you going to do? McClunky. That's right. That was the last. That was the last change made to the was McClunky on Disney Plus. I bet you have McClunky. And I love it. I love that George is obsessed with that scene so much and just don't give a damn. He's going to change it, and that's that is the weirdest one of the weirdest changes in Star Wars. And now I got to tell you, it's a ringtone. I love it. McClunky. What? Okay. Great. Do you have any opinion on? You know, George, I mean, again, Lucas doesn't really have a say in it anymore. The the prince is now owned by Disney, and then 
They always mm-hmm. said that the thing holding up releasing the original was that Fox owned the print, but now Disney owns Fox. So there you go. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on, you know, Lucas has famously said, like people say, like, well, we want the original print of Star Wars. And he said, like, well, it's my movie and uh, you get to get the version that I think is the best version. Do you think that people should be able to get that original version? Or do you think with an artist, with a director like George Lucas, who did, you know, um, at least from a writing standpoint, it was a collaborative effort on making the film. But as far as like a writing and directing standpoint, he invented that world. Do you think he's the one that gets to decide what version people get to see? Yes and no. I like you keep saying kind of conflicted over this. Uh, I don't think it would hurt as much as he thinks. No matter how the story goes, the director is usually left frustrated and not feeling that he's been able to complete his vision. I think I want to respect his wishes. I don't know. It's like it's not the same thing, but it's like when I see, you know, if you use a promotional photo for me, Dan, from 2008, I might be like, could, could you move that one up again? That's not me. That's yeah. not what I, that's not what it is. Not quite the same. I get it. But um, and at the end of the day, Dan, I think it would be celebrated more than a problem in, uh, that George uh, would might have thought it was. I don't know. But it's hard to get beyond the flannel and, and really understand what he's thinking. So taking you back to yourself watching this movie on TV with the commercial breaks and everything. And then fast forward to now and everything that's happened. Um, the, the way that the franchise has grown, the way that the discourse has changed around it, particularly with the newer films. When you look back on this movie, when you look back on A New Hope, do you love it the same way? Or has it, has it changed over the years? I actually think I love it more. Um, po- possibly because I was seven in 1983 and Return of the Jedi... It was the first one I saw. That one was my favorite for a long time. Then I made that transition that a lot of people do. Well, you know, actually, I suppose, yeah, it is. For a lot of different reasons that are, don't even have to do with the story, but just how it was made, how it was shot. Such a beautifully shot film. Empire. Uh, you know, how it was directed, all that kind of stuff. Christian's directing. Um, New Hope for me growing up was kind of like, I'm a Beatles fan too. It was like, I, I want to go listen to Abbey Road. I, I don't want to listen to Please Please Me. I respect it and I love it. And it's beginning. That's what started this thing I love. But I love this one with the beards and the drug-influenced uh, malaise. And, and uh, I want that. Um, new Hope was that for a long time for me. But yeah, it's great. I love it. It's New Hope. It's, it's the self-contained film almost. And, it, 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 and it, the hairstyles are a little more wonky and it looks a little different. But I think over time, Dan, I've really come to appreciate that for the start of the world especially when a lot of stories go back to the little moments. You know, quite frankly, I think the the upcoming Kenobi series is going to have a lot to do with the pauses between Alec Guinness's dialogue. I mean, you're, you're going to be able to connect the story to those looks. And that comes from New Hope. And I just continue to appreciate it more and more. Well, that's great. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, why we love Star Wars. Obviously, you can buy it. Ken, Amazon, where, where can you buy that? Amazon, Target.com, IndieBound. You can go to your local bookstore, wear a mask if you do it, and ask if they have the book. If not, they can order it because that'll get more copies on the shelves. Um, I have a couple copies left from my website that you can get personalized uh, if you go to KenNapsuck.com. But basically, we're, wherever books are sold. And you can also listen to the Force Center podcast with Ken Napsock and Joseph Scrimshaw and Jennifer Landa, usually, um, wherever you can find podcasts. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Dan, with you, it's always going to be a great, uh, insightful conversation and a pleasure to do it, though. I do miss our ham and cheese sandwiches. Those are insightful. Someday, Ken. The first time I'm back in L.A., if the ham and cheese sandwich shops are open, we're going to go grab one. Sounds like a plan. It's always great to talk to Ken about really anything, but the love and passion that he has for Star Wars, it mirrors the love and passion that so many other people still have for Star Wars. And I think that that gets kind of lost in the shuffle now because there's been so much added to it, particularly with the new films, since The Force Awakens, the creative choices that were made with those movies. It's almost like in five short years, we've lost sight of what we loved about this franchise for over 30 years before any of this happened. You can discount all the new movies, you can bring them into the fold, it's really up to everybody, but one thing that even I struggle with is not to lose sight of the fact that there is a magic, particularly in the first three films in the original trilogy, that's what got everybody hooked in the first place. 
And it's what made Star Wars a success on a global scale in a way that almost nobody had seen. When you adjust for inflation, Star Wars in 1977, just in its original release, was a $2.1 billion mega hit. That is crazy. That is an Avengers-level movie at a time when there were way fewer theaters, when there were way fewer people. That's the kind of thing that captured the imagination and still captures people's imaginations. I'm actually looking forward to seeing, in much the way that the prequels have been re-examined by a generation that were not alive when they came out, what will the next generation think of these newer Star Wars films that they see without any of these attachments that, that anybody has to the culture, to their decades of fandom, that are bringing it in as fresh as you and I saw the first Star Wars movies with, those, those fresh eyes, whether it was Empire Strikes Back or Attack of the Clones, whatever it might be. I think in 10 or 15 years, that's going to be the next thing to watch and, and, and really take note of, is what are the legacy of these films really going to be? Because, you know, Empire Strikes Back, the fact that, you know, it, it, its status as the best Star Wars movie of all time that has emerged in my lifetime. That was not an instant thing. When I was growing up as a kid, it was not a universally acknowledged thing that Empire Strikes Back was the best Star Wars movie. That's something that largely my generation, people my age and later determined over time. So it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens with these films as we go further down the line. You know, I found a clip that I thought was really funny. Of course, now the cast of Star Wars, I mean, they're, they're all legends. I mean, everybody knows who they are. But this is an interview that uh, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill did with Gene Shalit on the Today Show in 1977. And I think they actually captured their last moment of anonymity on tape. It's great to sit in a theater and see people really enjoy something like that. Have you done it? Have you been? Yeah. Any of you? Have you gone oh, yes. to see a theater just oh, yeah. anonymously, just go in as a patron? It's easy to be anonymous at this point, <laughs> really. Nobody recognizes us when we go into a theater. Which is a pleasure. Something that is not new is the critical debate about the value of Star Wars as cinema. We're having it now, and they were having it back when the original trilogy came out. This is an actual debate on ABC's Nightline from 1983 between critic John Simon, who called the original Star Wars, quote, as exciting as last week's weather reports, uh, and critics Siskel and Ebert, who were there defending Lucas's original trilogy. I feel they're so bad because they're completely dehumanizing. I th obviously, let's face it, they are for children or for childish adults. They're not for adult mentalities, uh, which unfortunately um, <clears throat> means that they're not for a lot of my fellow critics who also lack adult mentalities. But anyway, I totally disagree with Mr. Simon. I don't know uh, what he did as a child, but I spent a lot of my Saturday matinees watching science fiction movies and serials and having a great time of being stimulated and having my imagination stimulated and having uh, all sorts of visions take place in my mind that helped me to become an adult and to still stay young at heart. And I would say not that I'm childlike, but that he is old at heart. The other fascinating thing about Star Wars, and, and Ken touched on it when he said that you could take the movie home in a way that you could never have done that before, is that it wasn't just a group of movies, even in its inception back in the late 70s to mid 80s. Uh, it was an entire industry. George Lucas, through this script, through tapping into the storytelling, birthed almost a, a factory of Star Wars things, of toys and books, novels, comic books. And George Lucas made sure that he had full control of all of it. Uh, but this is also one of those myths that uh, it was dispelled or at least added more context to it as I was doing research for the movie, which is that it wasn't just this crazy business savvy decision. The reason that George Lucas negotiated full merchandising and licensing rights for all Star Wars is that he really just wanted to make sure that he could make the other two movies that he had planned out in his head. Star Wars was the first third of a very long script that he had written. And he was desperate to make those other two. And so one of the reasons that George Lucas made this incredibly savvy move to keep merchandising and licensing rights to Star Wars is really just that as a child of the 70s who had learned to distrust the studio system, he wanted to make sure that he could make the sequels on his own terms with whoever would give him the money to do it. Yeah, we expected the first film not to do that well. And so you're constantly on the defensive. You're constantly trying to say, well, if this one doesn't do well, how am I going to get the next one made? And um, as it turned out, the film was successful. I didn't need that. But what that gave me was a chance at independence. 
This was a real coup for George Lucas because much like so many of the other filmmakers of the 1970s, he had struggled to work in the studio system. Now, with the success of Star Wars, he had the winning hand. He would never have to fight for creative control. He would never have to fight to get the Star Wars movies he wanted to make funded. He would never have to fight with a studio head to get the movies greenlit. He had the success, the money, and the power to have his own company. And he did. He named it Lucasfilm, and he had complete and total control. And I think that is one of the great ironies when you look at George Lucas, which is that this idea of autonomy, which was all that he ever wanted, ended up being, in his career, a bit of a double-edged sword. I'm not happy with the fact that corporations have taken over the film industry, but now I found myself being the head of a corporation. So there's a certain irony there is that I have become the very thing that I was trying to uh, avoid. That is Darth Vader. He becomes the very thing that he's trying to protect himself against. In 2012, nearly 40 years after he began writing the script to the first Star Wars movie or what would become the original Star Wars trilogy, George Lucas sold Lucasfilm, including the rights to Indiana Jones and all of the Star Wars characters and properties and movies, you name it, to Disney for 40 million shares of stock, which at that time was a deal valued at around $4 billion. As a matter of fact, it made George Lucas the second largest outside stockholder in the Disney Corporation, second only behind the estate of Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. Now, what happened after George Lucas sold Star Wars? That's for another episode. Wrapping up as we always do with my physical copy of this movie, and it is actually kind of funny when we talk about the purchase of Star Wars from Disney because the copy of Star Wars that I currently have is from this box set that was put out by Lucasfilm in 2011. It's called Star Wars The Complete Saga, which is no longer a complete saga. It's a box set with episodes one, two, three, four, five, and six. It's got a lot of great special features. The DVD slash Blu-ray commentary that was transferred over to this release. You heard bits and snippets of that uh, here on the show today. It's also got that Making of Star Wars documentary that aired on ABC back in 1977. It's got some deleted scenes. It has production stills. It's got the theatrical trailers. Uh, This is the special edition of the movie, or at least the Blu-ray special edition, but not the latest one because as we saw in the thing with Ken, this does have the rocks in front of R2-D2 and the quote-unquote latest additions that George Lucas made to the print of Star Wars. But come to find out the McClunky thing happened even after this. So even this version isn't the latest version of Star Wars available. You'd have to go and find it on Disney Plus uh, to find that. So Star Wars is an ever-evolving thing. And it's always fun to talk about and examine. Of course, we have several Star Wars movies still left to go, both episodic and non-episodic, which we will talk about on future episodes. But for today, we are going to wrap up this episode. If you are listening to us, please consider checking us out on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. And if you're watching us on SEN, you can download this podcast wherever podcasts can be downloaded. We will be back next week with another edition of All My Movies. But for now, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching.